I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon as well as their Patreon backers. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me are Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK and Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Kalmykia, a republic and country of Russia located directly north of the North Caucasus in Eastern Europe between Ukraine and Kazakhstan, around 200 miles or 350 kilometers north of Georgia. The Kalmyks of Mongol origin migrated to the Caspian region in the 17th century from Central Asia and were mainly nomadic cattle breeders. Kalmykia was established in 1920 as an autonomous oblast and in 1936 became a republic which was abolished in 1944 when the Kalmyk people were exiled for alleged collaboration with the Germans during World War II. The territory of Kalmykia is unique in that it has been home to many major world religions and ideologies and Kalmykia now stands as the only Buddhist region in Europe. The republic covers an area of around 76,000 square kilometers or almost 30,000 square miles making it a similar size to Panama, Czechia, or the US state of South Carolina. With a population of around 275,000 residents, Kalmykia ranks among the smallest of Russia's federal districts in terms of population. Kalmyks benefit from their relatively high levels of education and strong international connections. Overseas communities are today found in many parts of Europe and in the United States. The head of the religious establishment in Kalmykia itself was born in Philadelphia, before being recognized by the Dalai Lama as a reincarnation of a Buddhist saint. The capital and largest city in the Republic is Elista, which has gained a reputation for, of all things, international chess. And for you Star Wars fans, the Ewok language was based on Kalmyk because George Lucas thought it sounded so strange. Kalmykia, what are some things that you guys are looking forward to talking about? I, I guess I'm interested in telling you about how poor agricultural policy can have devastating long-term effects looking forward to his wrong word but it's um (laughs) it is not what you would expect in in this region uh the 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 landscape and uh, it's changed a lot in the last 50 years and that's definitely worth talking about okay and mark what about you uh there's a couple of things uh i mean i get to talk a little bit about this the russian civil war uh which uh because uh I'm a bad person. I like to picture and think about the chaos that that, that was. Uh, and also there's a, there's a, a Mr. Kalmykia Smith goes to Washington slash Moscow uh, in mm. here where, where, you know, a good guy go, goes to Parliament, says sensible things, mainly about cows, and is totally ignored. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about our old friend uh, Joe Steele and uh, his paranoid reactions to uh, people that he feels are uh, working against him or could potentially work against him, which had a massive impact on Kalmykia. Yeah, I've intentionally not read too much about that era because I figured it was going to be really depressing. Was I right? Yes, I think you were. Cool. So yeah, foreshadowing is very uh, very positive and uplifting today. 
Uh, we should also mention at the top that um, we're recording this after recent events, namely Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Mm. But we planned this episode before that happened. And the patrons who voted on this episode voted on it before uh, all that kicked off. So um, Some of the topics are going to butt up against the issues in, in, in that part of the world. And it has been yeah. interesting to read about the Caucasus and the Caspian Sea and... The, the land between the Black and the Caspian Sea in that context, but it also has raised some quite sad uh, topics as well. Hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, I suppose it's always been, the, the, the edges of the Russian sphere of influence have always been troubled, I suppose, is something we're taking away from. We're, we're, we're leading with some real downer yeah. tone here. I was just going <laughs> to say, there's some cool music like, to look forward yeah. to. <laughs> and I, 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 I want to say that, like, it's been really interesting to see another Mongol country. So we, we, we talked about Alambatar earlier in the season and I think we all learned we an awful lot there about a culture that's maybe often overlooked in world history when we tend to focus on other civilizations. But these guys had some really interesting civil structures, ways of life that you know, we've seen some p- patterns replicated here that we also see in Mongolia and it's just kind of wild to think that the Dalai Lama is the head of the religion of a Russian Republic. I didn't know that. It's kind of fascinating just to watch, just to look at videos and stuff and, and photos and we'll embed some of those in the show notes. It's, it's, it looks like Asia. Uh, it, it has a very Asian feel when you, when you see yeah. pictures and like, you know, you see the people even here and it, I mean, they are ethnically speaking, they are very much of Asian descent, I suppose, but uh, this, is Europe. this is Europe. Yeah, it's it, it's Europe. It's a kind of a very curious place, a little kind of oasis of, of Asian Buddhism in the middle of Europe. Well, mi- mi- middle of Europe is maybe a push geographically. Certainly. Yeah. I, I don't think we could say it's not in Europe either, either. So a stone's throw from Georgia, which we would consider European. So should be interesting to talk about. So I'm going to kick off with some already history. I guess archaeology first. The area itself is kind of bordered by the rivers Don, Volga and Kuma, as well as the coast of the Caspian Sea. And the climate is generally uh, unforgiving, uh, is how I would describe it. The whole year sees quite strong winds throughout the entire area, which do kind of help with the, the intense heat in the summertime. But yeah, you, you also get dust storms uh, kicked up by those winds, which is no fun. Uh, summers are very hot with temperatures at times reaching up to the uh, mid 40s, whereas in winter they often drop to minus 30 degrees Celsius. Ooh. And the area is generally dry uh, all year round, so not much rain or snow in wintertime. And the small town of Uta, which is around an hour's drive outside Elista, which is uh, the largest town, as we mentioned, is the hottest place in Russia and recorded temperatures of 45 and a half degrees Celsius oh, or 113 degrees Fahrenheit during a 2010 heat wave. That's too hot. Uh, in terms of archaeology, there's evidence from the late Neolithic to medieval periods, which ex- comes almost exclusively from burial mound sites, also known as Kurgans, uh, mm. which I think we've discussed in previous episodes. For Georgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think the the did we say the the name of Georgia possibly originated from uh, that word? That, that a theory. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the theories, and we know uh, that those burial mounds were constructed almost five thousand years ago by the earliest nomadic groups to live in this area, and the tradition of constructing burial mounds was preserved until the fifteenth century A.D. 
when Buddhist nomads from Mongolia migrated to and settled in this region. Hmm. According to the Kurgan hypothesis, or the steppe theory, again, which we've discussed in previous episodes, the upland regions of modern-day Kalmykia form part of the cradle of Indo-European culture. So the, 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 this is the, the, the culture that kind of produced the languages that are spoken everywhere from Sanskrit over to Icelandic and everything in between. Yep. Maybe all trace back to some culture that lived here. And built these exactly uh, or hereabouts i suppose these, and these uh, burial mounds yeah and i think we talked about this in the georgia episode as well so we won't get into it again there's a lot of academic debate around it and uh, that's not what we're here to talk about so moving swiftly on in the fifth and sixth century the region was dominated by the khazars mm. who are a semi-nomadic turkic people whose empire covered a vast area from southeastern russia uh, southern ukraine crimea and kazakhstan and they flourished due to their position along the Silk Road. And up until around uh, the year 965, they dominated Eastern Crimea and the Northern Caucasus, which would include modern-day Kalmykia. Those were the, the civilization that famously converted to Judaism during the Ottoman period, weren't they? I think so, yes. Which was an interesting choice. I mean, it's not typical that people convert to Judaism. So for the elite of a, a semi-nomadic Turkic, Turkic civilization to do so is kind of mm. noteworthy. And maybe something we'll get to talk about again sometime. Yep. However, the people that we're most interested to talk about are the Oirats. Of course. Who are the precursors they're, to the modern Kalmyks. They're still there. Um, yeah, they're still there today. And they comprise of several West Mongol tribes that lived in the uh, southern part of Siberia initially. And Oirats is a loose term. They consist of several ethnically and linguistically related tribes and clans. But they were quite distinct from other Mongolian tribes in culture and language. And the distinctions were mostly determined by geography. They lived a lot in, in forests and in valleys, as opposed to the, the steppe Mongols. And uh, as a result, the Oirats are sometimes referred to as the forest Mongols. And these tribes became administratively and economically independent as a result of their uh, geographic isolation. They also frequently interacted with and traded with other tribes in eastern Siberia that spoke Turkic languages, and uh, so features of these languages made their way into the Oirat tongue uh, and are subsequently can be found in the Kalmyk language today. After being conquered by our, our old friend Genghis Khan, like, like everyone else, I remember we, we had a, a big debate about the pronunciation of his name, but we were not going to get into that again. Early in the 13th century, the Oirats were incorporated into his empire and into his army, but even so they retained a degree of autonomy within both and were ruled by their own Khans. Mm -hmm. There was an alliance of four Oirat tribes known as the Union of Four Allies, which came together around the end of the 14th century. These were the Durbits, the Koshwets, the Torgats, and the Jungars. So I think in our Ulaanbaatar episode we talked about Jungaria as being a, I think an we did, Oirat yes. empire. In, oh yeah, I've I've seen it spelled with a DZ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that'd be how you transliterate your Russian, I suppose. It'd be that mm -hmm. that letter that's kind of a Z, um, yeah. and we is spelt here in the notes with a J. Um, neither are perfect ways of of writing down Mongolian sounds. Yep. But I think we briefly touched upon how Manchu China had a all-out war with Jungaria, and I think pretty much wiped out that Oirat empire because it was a threat. So a Western Mongolian empire that was a big threat to Chinese hegemony. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Eastern Mongolians in and around what becomes Mongolia later managed to keep going as a, as a political entity for much longer. So 
if that sounds familiar to listeners, that's that's why. Yeah, the breakdown of Mongolia, I think it's not unfair to say, definitely contributed to the modern day formation of Kalmykia. Because, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I would imagine that uh, the uh, the several uh, centuries of ongoing infighting and civil war between the different Mongol tribes, I think, led to a number of them moving significantly westward. Sort of around the beginning of the 16th century, we had the, the splintering of, of Mongolia and we had the, the several different Khanates, which we again discussed uh, in our Ulumbatar episode. And uh, a guy called Ku Orlok of the Torguts and Dalai Taishi of the Dorbats led their people around 200 to 250,000 people, mainly the Torgut people, west to the borders of the Volga River in around 1607 where they established the Kalmyk Khanate. So that was okay. the, the kind of initial migration of people uh, that gave us this this kind of Buddhist outpost today. And uh, by some accounts, the move was precipitated by internal divisions, but other historians believe it was more likely that these migrating people were seeking pasture land for their herds, which were scarce in the Central Asian steppe. And some of the Koshut and Ola tribes joined the migration westward almost a century later. So yeah, yeah. the land between the Volga and the Damas was pretty good for for yeah, um, yeah. Pa- fostering cattle and, and following them around, as far as I can tell. Uh, yeah. So I can see the appeal of this this wide open terrain. And Absolutely, I, I will flag that they, they they don't get there immediately. The the kind of that they establish is is kind of more grouping it's not necessarily the geographical region that 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 takes yeah. a bit of time okay so mark uh do you want to give us a bit more detail on uh how the journey went for the comics and how they end up in in our neck of the woods sure so uh, as you say uh, we've got uh uh, Dalai Bat- Baterin and also Ho Orluk, uh, second of those is maybe maybe the name to, rem- to remember. Um, they proceed uh, northwest from Lake Zaysan, which is actually modern-day Kazakhstan, following the Irtish River and entered into negotiations with local authorities to get Russian citizenship. Oh. Uh, the motivation, as you said, was kind of, it was pre- pressure for the Mongols, uh, but they also just wanted kind of land for grazing. To, to, to preface a lot of this, the the, the Kalmyks just want to, just their own space, really. They just want a bit of space of land. Uh, they realize that the, the the land is controlled by Russia, but they're just trying to they're just trying to fit in. You're not, just you're, you're not using this land here, are you? No, anybody? Uh, essentially, <laughs> Russia's quite big. Yeah, yeah. Surely, there's space for yeah. us. And and also, this bit wasn't really well established as being Russia yet. Well, that 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 is that is a key point to hang on. I've had the tentative relation relationship between kind of Russia and and the comics in the beginning. So uh, initially the group is about, um, it was a very large kind of military grouping in some respects. They had 80,000 soldiers and about 200,000 others and pretty enormous wealth and livestock in terms of horses and camels and, and, and kind of cattle type things as well. Um, and they had a reputation as being, you know, kind of Mongols. Mongols means violence. But despite this, they, they were kind of very keen to try to move peacefully within Russia. They, they weren't looking for a fight. They were looking for, 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 for space. Um, so yeah, they, they felt quite uncertain, uh, and they were exploring territory, um, and encountering kind of Russian, uh, soldiers and so on, who they vastly outnumbered and kind of pointedly did not attack because they didn't want, did not want a confrontation. 
Russia, similarly, were kind of a bit tentative in terms of kind of consolidating the control over this area. So we're trying to be like, ah, hello, friends, uh, we, we will be friends and it will be good. Uh, but at the same time, but you probably should pay taxes and <laughs> and um, you're not really Russians. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, it was it was a bit of tension there. And just a note on context, because this is kind of. This is just the list of mad stuff that was happening in Russia in the very early 1600s. Give you a sense, it's kind of what Cal, what, what the Kalmyks, what the Oirats were actually stepping into. So between 1601 and 1603, there was a, a massive famine. There was armed uprisings in Moscow from peasants and in the lower Volga from Cossacks. There was also a guy called False Dmitri I from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth who tried to grab the Russian throne. His troops crossed the Russian border in the autumn of 1604. It's a good name. It's very good. Uh, Tsar Boris Godunov died in 1605 and there was an uprising in Moscow in May. As a result, False Dmitri entered Moscow, was assassinated, and followed up by False Dmitri II in 1607. Uh, and then there was enemies in Poland, Lithuania, Sweden, all attacking Russia as well. Uh, and then the Tatars and the Crimeans, who were essentially Tatars as well, uh, were also kind of rebelling because they mm. saw an opportunity. So they, 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 they were stepping into kind of the other part of Russia. The main part of Russia, where all, all the Russians were, was like on fire. Uh, so they were already paying too much attention. But but also the colonial projects were were at risk as well. For for sure. And all, all the kind of stuff in the East was on hold. It was lower priority than just kind of making sure Russia stayed a thing. And but there's but there's already Cossacks along the Volga trying to shore up that border. These were sort of militaristic tribes, would that be the right word for Cossacks? semi-ethnic groups yeah kind of yeah cossacks are, are kind of a hard one to define More like <laughs> known for being quite vicious yeah. super nationalist yeah. um but anyway the the, the Kalmyks were, were keen to discuss issues like land for nomadic, nomadic encampments uh commerce with siberian towns um and there was a representative of ho or uh he, he came to the city of uh, tara on september 20th 1606 to ask for permission to roam uh, on the upper Irtish and to carry on trade which is probably the first official contact between Russia and the Kalmyks uh, but in 1608 uh, a Kalmyk delegation visited the Tsar and on the return their access to Russian lands was formalized albeit very far away from modern day Kalmykia okay so there was uh, a series of skirmishes and in 1618 uh, they went again to the Tsar to kind of reaffirm the relationship, uh, skirmishes between the Kalmyks and, and the Russians. Um, and again, the Tsar basically kind of said, you're, you're grand, you're, 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 uh, you're, 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 you're fine. And there was an official charter, which included lovely words like to be in love and friendship and take care of each other in all things. So, you know, that sounds, sounds pretty good. Um, but it also included the first claims on uh, Kalmyki for, sorry, on, on the Kalmyks for military service, which is kind of basically... As we see, that and cattle are the two things mm. that the Russians uh, increasingly start demanding from, mm. from the Kalmyks. You're going to live in our backyard and need you to fight in our armies, uh, I guess. Um, so a fun mm. trend is that the Kalmyks uh, keep sending endless ambassadors to Moscow, to the Tsar, and to anybody else who they think would listen to say, uh, to, we just want to be loyal to the Tsar, we love the Tsar. Uh, and then local warlords, uh, or voyevoda, which is the much cooler word for them, uh, would keep reporting fake attacks by the Kalmyks in order to seek military resources and kind of undermine their their charm offensive with, uh, with the Tsar. Then there was a civil war among the Kalmyks, uh, which was bad at the time, but actually kind of consolidated power and it meant that uh, the Kalmyks were able to kind of make decisions uh, and, and be a bit more directive going forward 
the, the other thing is that during the Civil War, uh, the various factions were informing against each other, which also kind of didn't really help the bond of love and trust with the Tsar. 1636, uh, Daichin, who is the son of Ho Orlik, uh, he was granted the right to roam between the Volga and Ural rivers near Astrakhan on the north of the Caspian. So pretty much modern day Kalmykia. We're kind of like... Sounds a lot like the modern day borders, yeah. Yeah, we're kind of on the... It overlaps with it, I think. Um, and then in 1640, there was the Code of the Nomads, mm. which was a very patriarchal piece of legislation focusing a lot on wedding rules and I think quite a bit on uh, cattle as well. Uh, but it also um, uh, had punishments for failing to muster for battle. Uh, the punishment being the death penalty, fight or die. But this the, but this was a written written constitution, essentially. For the for the step, as far as I know, yes. Which is pretty... yeah, there's, a, there's yes. something in one of my later sections. I think about the the code of the step, which, to my understanding, is is kind of like a a, a sort of system of laws or and customs. I think I think that might be the same thing. Yeah, I've seen both names. This is it, I think. Yeah, uh, and and in terms of how society was structured, like was was it sort of how how were people inheriting and how was that kind of. Uh, it was a lot of that, yeah. The, the wedding age was 14. There was no inheritance oh. for girls. It, it, it set all, all that stuff out, I think. No, not, 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 not that any of that's good. But, but inheritance uh, doesn't seem particularly straightforward, at least later on. It's not direct father-to-son stuff. It's a little bit more nuanced. So uh, Ho Orlik is killed by the Tatars, so his son Daichin makes a plea to the Tsar in 1645 and manages to get himself recognized as a direct vassal right before the Tsar dies. Quick okay. The quid pro quo being that they would give some hostages and go to war against the Crimean Tatars, uh, who probably had just killed his dad, so fair right. enough. Um, the, the Dalai Lama, uh, presenting his credentials, had his governors, uh, who were Kutugtus. Oh, we've that's we've met that word before in, in Ulaanbaatar. Have we said that word? Okay. Um, and uh, so he had his Kutugtus uh, among the Mongols and the Oirats. Um, and uh, a man called Zaya Pandita, which is a very cool name, um, who was a clergyman and was actually the originator of the Kalmyk written language. Oh, wow. um, he, he translated books into Kalmyk as well. He was the first Ketugtu of the Oirats uh, since uh, 1639. The Dalai Lama also made Daichin a Khan officially in 1650. And the, the head Kalmyk Lama was appointed by Tibet and was called the Kambo Lama. He's he's the he's the Kalmyk Lama. So so, yeah. so they're following Gelugpa Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, with the Dalai Lama as yeah. their head of church. He he's their head honcho. Yeah. Okay, sure. so this this is mm. the same religion that's been followed in Ulaanbaatar and in Tibet. They they, they brought the religion with them exactly from where <clears> they okay. came. So yeah, no totally. fascinating. Wasn't wasn't the uh, there there was lamas in um, in in uh, uh, Ulaanbaatar as well. Yeah, yeah, was, uh, mm, yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. the Panchen Lama as the the second exactly. most influential character in uh, in Tibet. So uh, and, and of course, every, I think regular priests are called lamas in this version of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I believe Kalmykia was was quite religious in that regard. Like there were a lot of lamas in society uh, yeah. at, at this point. Uh, there will be challenges later. Hmm. Yeah, ominous. Uh, okay, so um, in 1657, they moved to a formal relationship of voluntary state allegiance, but crucially, they did not get Russian citizenship uh, as a result of that. And kind of just progressively, they're they're getting recognition as a fighting force, and their cavalry was used frequently against the Poles and the uh, Turks and the Crimeans. By all accounts, pretty, pretty good at killing Poles, Turks, and Crimeans. 1661, Daichin steps back as the local leader and authority passes to uh, a man called Monchak, 
and here the boundaries of where they could roam were set um, around kind of 1661 onwards. Kalmyks uh, became a more homogenous group as well. We're kind of seeing less of kind of in, in inter-tribe issues. Um, there, there probably was some slavery uh, among, among the population uh, from captives and so on, but it wasn't really a big part of their culture because it's not really doesn't really work that well um, in, in terms of kind of roaming cattle bands and mm. so on. It's, it's more a settled agricultural thing. So, But yeah, they definitely did the whole hostage thing, though, to build alliances Big between... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, think yeah. I, I know you mentioned them sending people off to, to Moscow. Yes, but, exactly, um, yeah. But I think they this is also done between, you know, different local mm-hmm. chieftains yeah, uh, yeah. And, and the Khan to kind of, you know, establish trusts and so on. Again, that that's that's how the Mongols did it. So that's how these guys did it, and that's so, how the Vikings did it, and that's how the Celts did it. It's it's, it's pretty commonplace uh, practice uh, in in tribal societies. I mean, it works, yep. right? So. <laughs> Hostages get results. Says yeah, Luke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's my policy. I like me on that platform. <laughs> um, so uh, so they used the Mongol alphabet until the mid-1600s when they switched to the new one that would have been introduced by Zaya Pandita, who himself translated 170 works from Tibetan, wow. uh, which really kind of gave some substance to what, uh, uh, to, to kind of the, 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 the gradual f- formalization of, of Lamaism in the 1640 Code of the Nomads. And via their links to Tibet, they actually had links to China and India, which you wouldn't have expected. And actually, through that, they had access to kind of Chinese and Indian literature and had a greater knowledge of the world than you might actually expect. They knew about oceans and stuff, oceans that they were very far away from. So yeah, they were um, they, they were they were smart cookies and they, they had a keen knowledge of botany uh, and uh, they were really interested in kind of the new Buddhist scholarly teachings and thoughts as well. So they were they were plugged in in a way that maybe some of the local Russians wouldn't have been. And some, not to be underestimated, just because they're nomadic. Mm, for sure. Yeah. I suppose you mentioned their cavalry uh, units as well, Mark. I mean, you know, the fact that they are essentially Mongols, uh, like, means that they, they I assume, had uh, a lot of skills with, uh, you know, horses and mm. equestrianism, which the Russians probably wouldn't have had at this time as well, which which makes them valuable in that sense, too. Yeah, and and also they had the they had the horses as well. They had the resources to actually well, yes, have yes, exactly. a, a heck yeah. of a lot of cavalry. Um, yes. Cavalry being like you know the tanks of of the day. Exactly of this period. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so anyway, the, the Russians were really glad to have a single point of contact uh, in this Monchak guy, and uh, outwardly they were like, "Ah, oh, Monchak, well, my my wonderful great friend." At the same time, they were encouraging his underlings to rebel against him to make sure that Monchak never got too too strong and started looking uh, looking to mm-hmm. you know, increase his fire. So uh, all they really wanted was the very killy uh, Kalmykia troops to do their fighting for them. They were kind of using them as a threat in some respects. There was, uh, I think, might have been versus the Swedes. It was basically stop messing about, or we're gonna. Break Bring in the Kalmex, and you know what that means. Have you, all have you met die. our Mongols? <laughs> yeah, essentially. <laughs> so uh, next, we have this guy called Ayuka Khan. He becomes the leader of the Kalmex in 1669. He's recognized by the Dalai Lama. In 1710, the Kalmex got a raise, which is good because in 1712, the Chinese came and said, "Hey, come back and fight for us." Uh, but Ayuka Khan said no. Then uh, finally, Tsar Peter I leaves Moscow for Astrakhan in 1722 where the army was getting together to fight Persia on his way to the army that the Tsar stopped in Saratov to see Ayuka Khan. Peter I requested 10,000 Kalmyk soldiers, but uh, basically they, they kind of 
tap the well uh, too too much, and there wasn't as many soldiers left. So they, they protested and said, oh, you've already taken most of our guys. Uh, so Peter I agreed to reduce the requested strength uh, down to 7,000 horsemen, and Peter I presented a golden sword and a belt covered with precious stones to Ayuka Khan to honor his loyal service. Uh, the Kalmyks fought, Russia won, Ayuka Khan died in 1724, aged 82, capping off what is often called the golden era of Kalmykia. Uh, implying, of course, only one way to go from there. But what I, what I will say is just this is a, a brilliant kind of, for, for 130 years, all they were trying to do was get the Tsar to see that they were like, we're, we're willing to do stuff for Russia. We're willing we're to on your side, bro. We're on your side, like, exactly. Yeah. And there was all the kind of the double dealing and then they'd have a civil war and then like there were is infighting and they can never quite lock it in. And and now the Tsar comes to their guy and and, and pays tribute to him. It is it is kind of the perfect, you know, representation of the ultimate success of the kind of the Kalmyk project to this point in time. Mm, under Yuka Khan. Mm. And under Yuka Khan, exactly. Uh but uh yeah, let's. Uh, frankly, I've I've not read your, the other sections, so uh, I'm I'm curious as to where this goes. <laughs> oh, All right, we'll a, take a quick. Uh, worried about that laugh, Luke. Worries me greatly. Yeah, uh, we'll take a quick break here. I've got a couple of Kalmykian guys playing the Dambura or Topshur, which is a Kalmyk two-stringed wooden instrument. So I'm gonna insert a quick clip of that here. This is Dmitry Sharyev and Viktor Batrovich Okcheyev. Let's hear a little bit of their talents. So we've had 82 years, Joe, of the uh, golden age of Kalmykia. How's that going to change now? So as is typical, uh, after a long and successful reign of a kind of unifying figure, Ayuka's successors were in charge of a less united Kalmykia, shall we say. Right. And over the coming decades, the Tsarist government began to pursue policies of limiting the Khan's power uh, and also Russian peasants began colonizing Kalmyk pastures for farming to a greater extent. So we're already mm. um, Cossacks around the Volga and around the Don setting up these kind of Cossack societies, uh, which were more sedentary farming societies, um, which so is always... beginning to see more sort of a traditional settlements yeah, as opposed to Russian nomadic. Orthodox, Christian farming, yeah. settled... Easier to administer. Um, easier to control. Yeah. And in contrast to these nomadic, Buddhist, you know, horseback riding, other civilization, um, which was was in the same space, there was, there was a lot of tension. And Russia would obviously always prefer to Russify somewhere than to do a deal with it. As you see in time and time again, uh, That's that's always been the project. Uh, the colonial project of of the Russian Empire. Yeah, uh, but the Kalmyk cavalry, as as um, Marcus highlighted, continued to take part in various wars: the Russian-Turkish wars, the Russian-Polish wars from fifteen 
1654 to 67, the Russian-Swedish War, the Seven Years' War, and indeed a Persian campaign in the 1720s. Uh, so they were still doing their military service and as, as required by the Tsarist government. Still very effective, I'm sure. Yes, and terrifying. Mm. Um, but as always, with, with a long-reigning leader, succession was a problem. Ayuka's eldest son had died before Ayuka, which complicated things. Initially, uh, his, his second son was promoted by his mother, Darambala, who was an important political player, as is often the case in such societies. Initially, however, Tseren Donduk Khan was named, uh, and he was heavily disputed by his nephew. And then the nephew, Donduk Ombo Khan, was eventually appointed, particularly as he had spent some time in exile as an Ottoman citizen, and Russia thought that would be useful in the Russian-Turkish wars. Ah, uh, uh, so okay. They, they wanted they, a, an outsider. It was somebody who knew Ottoman society uh, yeah. w- would be a useful ally. So they, they uh, convinced him to come back and, and take up the Khanate in 1735. He was not quite autocratic, but raised the army to 50,000 troops, which is an impressive size of a, a military yeah. force. Um, for such a small group as well. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah. they only ar- initially arrived, what, a 100, 150 years earlier with about 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Uh, so the fourth Khan who took over in 1741 was Dondukdashi. Uh, he was selected as governor by the Tsarist government. Um, he was given, he was to have no authority over baptized Kalmuks, which was a change. So if people had become Christian, they were no longer his subjects. And that was being pushed as a policy. Uh, and importantly, his selection was objected to by his cousin's widow. So this was um, Dondo Gombo Khan's widow. She'd fled to St. Petersburg, to the Tsarist court, and okay. uh, lodged her objections. And she would actually be the the uh, antecedent of the Dondokov noble family who turned up through Russian history later on. So that they kind of went Russian, as it were. Do you think these of, were her objections, or were they the Tsar's objections? No, there was, there was internal her. disputes. She, she believed her, okay. her her husband's son should be the next Khan, rather than his cousin. Mm. Um, right. Which, I suppose, is a reasonable point of view. So the fourth Khan's eldest son, uh, Asarei, died at ten from smallpox uh, when he was away as a, as a hostage somewhere. So, again, the succession was complicated, uh, and Ubashi, the youngest son of Dunduk Dashi, took over as, in 1761 as the last Khan of the Kalmuks. Okay. So it was a complex time. The Tsarist destabilizing of Kalmuk society was going quite well. And uh, Princess Dondokova, who I mentioned earlier, who'd, who'd gone off to St. Petersburg, she was also uh, campaigning against uh, Ubashi's Khanate. And indeed, uh, with Catherine the Great's approval, her son Alexei took control of her late husband's Ullus. So this was the particular groupings, family groupings and villages that her husband would have been the, the lord over. Russia was basically concerned at all this unrest and forced a, a council called the Zargo on Ubashi Khan, where representatives of each of these Ulluses, these kind of village groupings, would kind of be able to tell the Khan what to do. And any wait, disputes? Wait, wait. Are they forcing a representative democracy? On they the are. Cans? Sounds suspiciously yeah. like democracy. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and any disputes would be settled in Saint Petersburg. So this was outrageous to a uh, to yeah. a kind of autocratic um, nomadic society. 
Uh, and it wasn't been done for the sake of democracy, I'm sure, uh, rather to kind of further foment unrest and dispute within the group. But a, a, a kind of uh, controlled amount of dissent, <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in 1765, Sebek Dorji, who I mentioned earlier, he returned to his community, his calm, his Ulysses that he had once ruled. He, he had been driven off to the Don by Cyrus earlier, um, and he kind of became an ally of Ubashi. He first raised the idea of a return to Jungaria, so sort of giving up on this whole Russian project. Going back to the homeland. Going back to the homeland. Oh, wow. Mm. So um, there's a quote from him advising Ubashi Khan, saying, Look, your rights are limited in every way. The Russian officials treat you horribly, and the government wants to make farmers out of you. Here, the banks of the Ural and the Volga are covered with Cossack villages. Here, the northern outskirts of the steppe are inhabited by Germans. Little more time, and the Don, Terek, and Kuma will be occupied, and you will be hampered in waterless spaces, and your herds, the only source of your existence, will be destroyed. He wasn't was far wrong? wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, this was this idea started fermenting in the the minds of the leaders of Kalmykia. Interesting. Uh, nonetheless, Subashi led Kalmyk forces in the Russo-Turkish War against the Crimean Tatars, their long-standing ethnic enemies. But he had disputes with the, the, the general, a Kurdish general from Courland, uh, Johan Medem, and they actually left earlier. So, so Medem had studied in Königsberg, just to call back to our mm. earlier parts of the season. Uh, but the, the cavalry basically left that war early as, as a result of these disputes. And uh, in the snowy and frosty winters of 1767-68, the cattle began to die in the Kalmogulists. So things uh, weren't looking great mm. on the shores of the Caspian. Mm. And they started to plan a departure to the east of the Kalmogs along the Volga. It was carefully planned and prepared for four years by the inner circle of Ubashi, the Dalai Lama was contacted to request his blessing and to set a date for departure. And after consulting his astrological charts, the return date was set for 1770. But at the moment of departure, the weakening of the ice in the Volga River permitted only those Kalmyks who roamed on the left or eastern bank to leave, and those on the right were forced to stay. Ooh, okay. Oh boy. This movement of 33,000 wagons of people, which is about 200,000 people, the majority of the Kalmyks in the region, and 6 million animals... Uh, Qingrun Central Asian area uh, ruled by the Chinese at this point was a dramatic turn of events wow so I didn't I didn't get that wow so yeah they, they, they lost like a huge amount of population no I didn't I, I didn't know about this either it's approximately five sixths of the Torgut tribe followed Ubashi Khan as he was a Torgut uh, most of the Koshuts Churos and Khoyats also accompanied the Torguts on their journey to Chungaria and the Durbit tribe, by contrast, elected not to go at all. Uh, so the Kalmyks, who resettled in the Qing territory, became known as Torguts, and the Kalmykian population left behind is actually predominantly from the Durbit uh, ethnic grouping, as a result wow. of this, which was not the case beforehand. And their exodus, they had to fight Cossacks to cross the fortified defensive line between the Volga and the Don, uh, and an edict had been sent to the Kazakhs to encourage harassing these apparently kind of abandoners of Russia, like Cyrus uh, Russia wanted to stop them leaving. I mean, they had proved pretty useful up to this point, so I can understand that, yeah. So the Kazakh Khans gladly picked off capture and captured livestock and, and families and put them into slavery, all as they fled across the steppe. Oh, God. 
And of the 200,000 people who left, only about 85,000 made it to their new home on the Aegean River seven months later. So beset by hunger, disease and attacks. And when they got there, tragically the Qing coerced them into giving up nomadism for farming. Which they did not have a background for. Uh, Which is one of the reasons why they'd left in the first place. And this led to an impoverished group and horrible things like child slavery became commonplace in this now impoverished, formerly nomadic grouping uh, in in the East. Jesus. Uh, One of the saddest moments was leading the people along Lake Balkash, a salty desert lake in July, uh, led to a great loss of life as people and livestock drank from the salty water. And uh, three years after arriving, Ubashi himself would die in Beijing. Uh, He had been heaped with honours as a result of bringing these people to to the Qing dynasty, but... um, At least he made out okay. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. Screw that guy. Catherine the Great, having failed to stop this departure, decided to abolish the Khanate, and Ubashi was the last Khan. Okay. Bailiffs are now appointed to each Ulus uh, to enforce Russian laws on, on each community. And correspondence with Buddhist centres in Tibet, etc., was forbidden. Um, the Sangha, or, or religious leader, was now going to be Sar appointed. Oh, no. And again, a quote from uh, the, the Master's Thesis of Valeria Gazisova, uh, which was a very interesting resource about Buddhism, and can be found online. Uh, After the rupture with other, other Buddhist centres, Buddhist architecture in Kalmykia changed under the influence of Russian Orthodox style. Thus, the curvilinear contour roofs gradually disappeared, also, some necessary components of Mongolian Buddhist temples, Ganjur, the prayer wheel, were no longer constructed by the end of the 19th century. Moreover, elements of typical Russian Orthodox churches, such as porches and circular arches, were added to hurls, uh, which is the name for a gathering place, usually a religious gathering place in Kamikia, but I think we met that word in an Arulan Batar episode as well. Hurul. And it's the current name for the, the political assembly uh, in Kamikia. Yeah, I should also mention that... Um... I, I definitely drew heavily, heavily on uh, Valeria Gazizova's master's thesis as well, which I, I think was from the University of Oslo, but she's currently working at the University of Heidelberg, if if my Google searching is, searching is correct. So uh, we, we should thank her for um, some excellent research. Some excellent research, yeah, which was a key source for this episode. So um, small groups of Kalmyks became parts of the Oral, Orenburg and Terek Cossack troops, so they kind of merged into the the, for want of a better word, uh, white Christian society as much as they could. Um, the Dorbet, having been trapped on the right side of the Volga and unable to join the Exodus, came to dominate the remaining Kalmuks under Russian suzerainty. And uh, Dorbet representatives appealed to Paul I to reinstate their Khanate. He did briefly in 1800, but after his assassination in a palace coup, Alexander I, the new Tsar, abolished it again in 1803. So throughout the 19th century, the Kalmyk cavalry still took part in Russia's wars, uh, including getting 260 medals um, for the capture of Paris in uh, the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, but some had taken a more settled lifestyle, and they were politically divided among several jurisdictions. There was no longer a single polity of the Kalmyks. And so I thought maybe we could play a bit of music here, which is uh, the song Uvsh Khan, which is a lament about the exodus. Uh, one of the great epic stories that's sung in Kalmykia. Great.
Uh, Mark, I believe you're going to talk to us a little bit now with the Russian Civil War and uh, the effect that that had on the uh, comicians. Yeah, as, as ever, as soon as I saw uh, Russia, uh, I made sure to carve out a an opportunity for me to to think, read, and talk about the Russian Civil War. So before before we get there, we can start at kind of a couple of years before just give you, give you a flavor, I guess, an update as to kind of how things have been going for the comics. So um, the comics were emancipated, uh, much like the serfs, back in 1892. So not good, good thumbs up kind of thing. Um, but as a result, they were now getting taxed. Oh, no, just like normal stiffs. Um, but in 1900, their, their tax system was replaced with the tax on their livestock, which was kind of both more appropriate to the form of their wealth and made it easier for them to pay. But ultimately, they had to then give over their livestock which is very problematic yeah. for them as well because animal agriculture is still their their main activity um they had over five hundred thousand animals in their herds in 1900 which is is enormous but joe you were just kind of saying it was they had six million or seven million that left yeah so yeah, yeah, yeah. we're a, a huge diminishment as to what their their kind of material wealth was before so kind of cows sheep goats bit yeah, of everything but, whatever you like right basically so um there was greater transference between russia and kalmyk uh cultures so there's you know just a lot more interchange happening than there had been and there was a kalmyk russian dictionary introduced in 1911 which seems late but there you go uh and there was a research area of kalmyk studies which was beginning to be done i guess 1905 uh there was an announcement uh, officially of liberty of conscience and this was confirmed by the Tsar, basically saying it's okay to be a Lamist. So that's good news. The same year, the Duma, the Russian parliament, was reformed somewhat to try and stave off revolutionary rumblings from the communists, which, you know, that that works. So that, we'll never hear from them again. But the, the Kalmyks got their own seat in the Duma, uh, which is which is good. Uh, sorry, um, this, this is the first time they've gotten representation in the Russian... I mean, when you say it like that, Joe, it doesn't sound quite as good. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, you're all glass, glass, glass half empty. So, you know, um, they got representation, implying they never had representation before. Um, yeah. uh, first, Duma was then dissolved in July 1906, meaning their guy had only, he was only in situ for two months. And they also got someone into Duma number two, uh, who made plenty of points on more cow insurance, please. Less cow tax, please. More cow land. And uh, please release the Kalmyks from administrative guardianship, which was still, they were kind of in this weird status where they were like, eh, they're not really kind of allowed to govern their own affairs. They need to be kind of under someone's What's the kind of wards of state? Something like that. Yeah, they're kind of like weird Kalmyk orphans as a group. So yeah, kind of a silly thing. Anyway, these very good points were, of course, ignored and nothing happened. And there was a third Duma in 1907, uh, which had no place at all for the Kalmyks, meaning they now fell under the Ministry for Internal Affairs. There was a push to format Kalmyk society along the lines of the rest of Russia. So they were organized into villages and uh, what were called Volosts, which was a village cluster. Um, the governor of Astrakhan was to be their chief guardian. Again, sounds kind of paternalistic. Know, super it sounds kind of orphany but exactly like it, it sounds like a you know a yeah I, I, I mean russia has this problem of incorporating different ethnic groups into mm. it on an equal yeah. standing like there's the issue with the the chechens just to the south who who are muslim and that's a problem that's that's, and that's been a big problem there's yeah. the the koreans and the ethnic koreans in the east of russia mm -hmm. went through a horrible time as well because they 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 aren't russian and 
you know, we, the we, Jews, of course, via the Birbijan and Jewish autonomous Oblast. oblast. Yeah. yeah, trying to homogenize Russian society has been a pattern, and yep. it is deeply problematic and continues to be deeply problematic. I mean, it's impossible, really. Is it? I mean, well, I, it, I it requires the crushing of every other culture within yeah. the borders, um, no matter how similar it is, no matter how different it is. I mean, the, the 20th century was horrendously effective at it, but even still these cultural groups mm-hmm. persist and the Kalmyks thankfully are still a, a going concern culturally and linguistically and religiously, but it's been a, they're, they're in for a rough century. So, uh, with that foreshadowing, mm-hmm. uh, in 1913, a law was passed reducing their access to lands considerably. And in 1915, their animal headcount was down to uh, 1.25 million. So it had recovered, but was still much lower than it had been. And this then dropped by about 30% due to World War One. Mm. Um, they'd also got into grain farming in a big way, which was a bit strange for, for them. Uh, between 1901 and 1914, winter wheat production had gone up 14 times and barley by ridiculous 332 times. Also implies they probably didn't do much barley yeah. before, but you know. 332 times two is... Uh... Yeah, sure. Yeah, two, two, uh, 664 grains of barley. Um, they also got into melons uh, and various other things like fishing. Oh. Melons, I guess, kind of like the, the, like Turkmen- the Kazakhs. Turkmenistan's just the, other side of the, just the other side of the sea, yeah. Exactly. Um, they, 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 know their, they know their onions, they know their melons. Um, 1914, there was approximately 200,000 Kalmyks, but the population was growing at a much smaller rate than the rest of Russia. Um, there was also growing calls for Kalmyk nationhood from a union of teachers calling themselves the Kalmyk People's Banner who joined a wider National Russian Teachers Union in 1907, and political parties in the Duma would pledge support for, you know, recognition of Kalmyks, and then they would uh, do nothing. 1917. Saddle up. It's the Russian Civil War. Revolution breaks out, and the Bolsheviks declared liberty and equality for all peoples, all implying Kalmyks, plus a bonus of free development of national minorities and ethnic groups residing in Russia. Very encouraging stuff. That sounds great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. There was a push to try to find a way to fit the Kalmyks into the new administrative framework, but they didn't even have a very consistent view of kind of what the Kalmyks themselves wanted. They didn't have a a clear ask. The first Congress of Soviets of the Working Kalmyk People, held in Astrakhan between the 1st and 3rd of July in 1918, was kind of the next stage to complete the process of pulling Kalmykia into the Soviet power structure and setting up an executive committee. Pretty much straight away, the civil war kicks off with the Cossacks quickly siding against the Bolsheviks. Cossacks go white side. Well, yeah, they, they're essentially old Russia. Uh, old Russia is what we like. Uh, the Tsar, all that stuff. Mm. Um, they're they're you know national, super nationalists. So that's they they like the nation state just as it is. Thank you very much. And and they will be a big chunk of the population in the the kind of upper Caucasus and and the, the area between the Caspian it's, and, yeah, and the, the the Black Sea. The, the general area around Kilmykia is, 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 is very Cossack-influenced. Um, during the First World War, the, the Kalmak Don Cossacks fought on the front line, and during the Civil War, following the Bolshevik Revolution, the Don Kalmyks supported the White Armies. So these are kind of Kalmykia, a, a group of Kalmyks fought on the white side, and unsurprisingly, another group fought on the red side. This is kind of, this is a civil war. It's, it's very complicated and messy, and it was, it was true for, for this as well. The White Army had two comic divisions, namely the 3rd Division, which was mainly teenagers, and the 80th uh, Dungarian Division, 
which is made up of the veterans of the First World War. Uh, first of those, a bunch of kids, not very good at fighting, and were smashed pretty quickly, uh, but all those veterans uh, were, were pretty successful and uh, in continuing to be killing them. The 8th Division survived, but obviously they're on the wrong side of the Civil War, ultimately, um, and those Kalmyks ended up fleeing on boats from the Crimean Peninsula to Turkey at the end of the Civil War. From there, those Kalmyks moved on to European countries and like Bulgaria and Serbia. Hmm. The Bolshevik military managed to pull in Kalmyk units as well, and Kalmyks were also obliged by the Red Army units passing through with horses, cattle, food, transportation, etc. Um, because they were officially the government, I suppose. Well... Because they had an army and they'd shoot no, you if you didn't. Okay. Essentially, it's kind of, well, you know, who's officially the government? Uh, whoever is going to, who's ever, whoever is closest to shooting you, I guess. They they had to beg for an end to this requisitioning, which is obviously replaced with um, crippling taxes, a tax they could only afford to pay by selling off loads of their livestock uh, and mm. converting it to cash. Uh, so yeah, it, it, they were screwed either way. Essentially, Wonderful. you can um, keep your lives, but we're going to take all mm. your stuff. Really good for the working people. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, know, you can keep your cattle, but we need money instead. We don't have any money. Can you sell your cattle? Um, <laughs> so the Second Congress of Soviets of Working People, uh, Working Kalmyk People, sorry, uh, was formed in September 1918 and agreed in drafting Kalmyk workers to the Red Army, recognizing cattle as a valid way to pay taxes, which was helpful, and nationalizing the largest Kalmyk estates. So essentially kind of just because you're Kalmyk doesn't mean you're not decadent uh, so if you're if you're wealthy enough we're gonna take all your stuff there's something very judgmental about that that sort of soviets of working Kalmyk people it really has a, a kind of a i don't know there seems to be a value judgment in there about like wow. we needed to put the word working in there well otherwise you're not, 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 not you lay about congresses Kalmyk had similar kind of names as well didn't they i, I believe oh they uh, all are working did they oh yeah exactly I, yes for yeah. sure um, so anyway, they, they, Congress and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, th- this, this group sends two delegates to the All-Russian Congress in November, uh, albeit among twelve hundred and ninety-six other delegates. So they probably weren't making a big splash. In late nineteen eighteen and early nineteen nineteen, the Soviets established a socialist economy, drafted the poorest into the Red Army, and at the same time, trade unions, party organizations, uh, and communes specializing mainly in cattle breeding and cooperative associations were being formed in Kalmyk villages. So kind of, you know, the, the, the communist architecture is is spreading across uh, Kalmyk society. It's, it's proliferating. Anyway, in the spring of 1919, Anton Ivanovich Denikin comes to town. He is the lieutenant general in the Imperial Army on the white side. And when the Civil War started, he became deputy supreme ruler of Russia. So good, good for him, I guess. Uh, but he came to occupy the Kalmyk steppe region. Uh, battles started to rage between this group of kind of white soldiers and the reds both sides seeking to recruit the Kalmyks into their armies now again like these are no it's no longer a remote issue the 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 war is being fought literally in In their territory exactly um the all Kalmyk soviet council was due to meet but they were like this is no time for discussing (laughs) administrative issues um there was an appeal entitled to Kalmyk Brothers, signed by Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov Lenin, uh, published on July 22nd, 1919. It's, it helped convince the Kalmyks, largely to come down to the side of the communists, uh, promising free and equal development of Kalmykia. So he, he saw them as important enough to try to kind of get them specifically on side. Um, then there was On New Land Management by the Kalmyk People, a declaration um, in July 20. 
henceforth the territory of the Kalmyk Steppe was declared free from the oppression of the rich and belonging to working Kalmyk people forever. So again, there's that slightly judgy tone. Yeah. The Soviet government recognized the integrity and inalienability of the Kalmyk territory and prohibited any spontaneous migration until, until detailed land regulations were set. See, I, I think that was meant to be spontaneous migration into the territory, but wow. I think it was meant to be a good thing. Yeah. Uh, although, mm, anyway, uh, cattle owned by Kalmyks were not to be confiscated by the Red Army. That's good. That's good. Military operations were over in the Kalmyk Steppe by March 1920 with the Soviets victorious, but the Kalmyk economy was basically dead. The Soviet power was restored, but the economy gone. Uh, continuous military operations, robberies, seizures of property and cattle, either by the red or the white side, uh, were just too heavy a burden on the population. Numerous mobilizations imposed by both opposing armies cut down the numbers of able-bodied men. Basically, all their men were shot in the war. Um, and uh, it deprived thousands of farms of their workers as well. So mm, they were the backbone of the stuff. economy. So, you know, it all fell mm. apart. From World War One. The Revolution of 1917 and the Civil War, the total Kalmyk population decreased in the two oblasts, the Kalmyk Steppe and the uh, Bolshider Batovsky, which is the other name of the other region which was relevant for this. It decreased by over 39,000 people, that is by 26%. Yep. Uh, Cattle stock in Kalmykia decreased by 86.5%. So, you know, people, many dead, cattle mainly gone. It's the whole way Um, of life and the people who do it. Right it, this is a real in a generation like, the, the the society was weakened uh, this is a kind of a double tap to the back of the head frankly so soviet help they gave them some agricultural equipment some some rye six tons of rye uh 843 kilometers of textiles <laughs> uh, not a not a way of measured textiles before that's uh, uh, 58000 packs of Kalmyk tea and have a cup you know, of tea you'll feel they, better <laughs> they, they didn't they didn't ask for anything in return oh wait could we have a million kilograms of meat please <laughs> so they, <laughs> they, they requisitioned everything basically that was left uh you know anything of value and gave them some you know soviet made tat uh, that they give us all your meat here's some yes. textiles and some tea that you can eat yeah <laughs> Wow. Anyway, so uh, the Kalmyk Executive Committee uh, concluded that the state entity of the Kalmyk people should be an autonomous oblast, which is a term we've heard before. Um, and in February to May, they decided that the delegates for the forthcoming All Kalmyk Congress of the Soviets of Working Kalmyk People. There's one that just rolls off the tongue. And the permanent higher authority body and operational working body of the Central Executive Committee, the Presidium, uh, the kind of the big Soviet um, decision making body was established at the first uh, session and five people were sent by by the Kalmyks to the first. And actually, I think they would go up in years to come. So uh, they, you know, they're they're in Soviet Russia now. They're they're in the system. Uh, They've basically lost all their cattle. Um, And Uh, uh, yeah, but... A quarter uh, of their people as well. And and yeah, a quarter of their people. um, But they are there. That's that's it they are there that 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 is about uh they you know they're they're they are a thinking thing that's that's all they got the fact that they're there that's that's basically all that's left okay we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with our last two sections after this (laughs) 
For the last time in Season 5, and as always, we'd really like to thank our Patreon backers for making this show possible, and in particular in this episode, for choosing Kalmykia as a very interesting place to end this season. We'd particularly like to thank some of our most recent Patreon backers, Joel Happel, Bo, Christina Manouge, Alex, Kit Kadama, and Rooney Nielsen. Welcome to the club. <laughs> thank you for choosing to give us some support. And we hope you really enjoy what's coming in Season 6, where again our patrons will have input on what we do for the season finale. So if you'd like to join them, go to patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast and find out more about what's on offer. Now, without any further delay, back to Kamiki. Alright, so comics in the Soviet Union. At the top of this section, I'm just going to mention two key sources, a book by a guy called Konstantin N. Maximov, which is Kamikia in Russia's past and present, uh, and also by Elza Bear Guchinova, a book called The Kalmyks. So yeah, Russia had suffered significantly during World War I and uh, was not in a good place after around 1920 or so, and the government wanted to exercise control over its population and you know, give some sense of stability to the nation in July. So you mentioned, Mark, the first All-Kalmyk Congress, mm. uh, which was in July of 1920, uh, and proclaimed the Kalmyk statehood in the form of an autonomous oblast. And the USSR then adopted a strategy of national delimitation, which involved drawing clear lines between regions, SSRs and ASSRs, which we've discussed in previous episodes, while at the same time enforcing the Leninist principle of democratic centralism, so creating buy-in from all areas of the Union. And as part of this process, the federal government hoped to win popularity and authority by demonstrating their concern for the Kalmyks. Uh, they funded the Kalmyk people, but at the same time worked to dismantle their nomadic lifestyle further. In 1921, resolution was adopted by the Kalmyk Congress of Soviets to quote, strive in every way towards the actual implementation of life of the Kalmyk people to a settled life by grouping separate residence units into permanent settlements of no fewer than 50 tents. Similarly, the Code of the Steppe, which we mentioned earlier, was maintained in principle, but was in fact superseded by federal law. Mm. The economy became more organized and harvesting, as opposed to uh, rearing cattle, became more commonplace, more so in the west of Kalmykia than in the east, but state influence continued to spread. Uh, similarly, the Russian language rose in prominence at this time while the Kalmyk tongue began to diminish. Soviet authorities didn't overtly enforce an anti-religion policy, but they did take steps to exert their control over this area of people's lives as well, including the imposition of a tax to live near places of worship and religious schools. It's pretty, it's pretty overt. Yeah. Uh, and the Cyrillic script replaced Toto Beaching, which is the, uh, the script that you mentioned earlier, Mark, the, what had become the traditional Kalmyk vertical script. When he yeah. introduced, I think, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's a pity. Yeah. Uh, in the early 1930s, under pressure from above, uh, local government officials aggressively increased the collectivization rate in the oblast, which began to create uh, sort of bubbles in the numbers. While over 7,000 peasants' households, around 26.8%, were uh, deemed collective farms in early January of 1930, by April of the same year, the number had more than doubled to over 20,000. Uh, and these moves were not without resistance. The Kalmyks revolted against uh, Russian oppression in 1926 and 1930, 
but uh, both of these came to nothing in the end. In March of 1927, around 20,000 uh, Kalmyks were de deported to Siberia. I didn't, I wasn't able to find much on this, but I think that was probably uh, as retribution uh, for those uprisings against the government. And in the mid-1930s, communications, transportation, and road building were developing. Construction of different settlements and the town of Elista was, uh, was going on. In 1933, the population of Elista made up around 8,300 people. And according to government records, there were 840 houses and 56 public buildings. You know, a very small settlement, uh, but uh, it's, it's growing in size. Then in June of 1941, the German army invaded the Soviet Union. And by August of the following year, the German army group had captured Elista, the capital of the Kalmyk ASSR. Uh, after capturing the Kalmyk territory, the German army officials established a propaganda campaign with the assistance of anti-communist Kalmyk nationalists, including Kalmyk exiles. And the campaign was focused primarily on recruiting and organizing Kalmyk men into anti-Soviet militia units uh, with mixed success. The Kalmyk units were uh, very successful in flushing out and killing Soviet partisans in their territory. But by December 1942, the Red Army had retaken the Kalmyk territory, forcing Kalmyks assigned to those units to flee, uh, in some cases with their wives and children in tow. These Kalmyk units retreated westward into unfamiliar territory with the retreating army, uh, German army alongside them, and were reorganized into what became known as the Kalmyk Legion, although the Kalmyks themselves preferred the name Kalmyk Cavalry Corps. And by the end of the war, the remnants of this unit had made their way to Austria, uh, where Kalmyk soldiers and their family members became post-war refugees. And although a number of Kalmyks did therefore decide to fight against the Soviet Union, the majority by and large did not. Uh, and approximately 8,000 Kalmyks were awarded various orders and medals, including 21 Kalmyk men, who were awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, as we've heard in previous episodes, Stalin was uh, was not a big fan of anyone who chose to turn against him and was not the forgiving type. Uh, so after the liberation of Kalmykia from the Nazi invaders, Kalmyk leaders concentrated their efforts on two key lines, reconstructing the uh, economy and rendering all-round assistance to uh, the front. However, the efforts of almost 40,000 people counted for very little in the eyes of Stalin versus the defection of around 5,000 Kalmyks. And he signed the order to liquidate the ASSR in October of 1943. I, I, I would suspect that this was an excuse to do something he wanted to do. Possibly, yeah, quite possibly. You know, we, 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 we've seen Stalin in Georgia try to dis destroy the local culture there. We've seen the yeah. deportation of the Jews to Birbhajan in our Jewish Autonomous Oblast episode deportation of ethnic groups was a policy of Stalin and the, the slander of they're all Nazis, you know, is a fig leaf for a wider policy of um, weakening cultural unions that aren't the, the, the mainstream one. Exactly, yeah. But I would say he was also extremely paranoid. Yeah. Yes, there was intentionality there, but also suspicion and mad thoughts seem to be like a pretty yeah okay big part of his motivation as well like it's 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 both i think mm. i'm just going to read a quick quote here from uh Konstantin maximov's uh book which i referenced at the top of this section 
he quotes from a, an official report of one of the military officers which describes this deportation uh, as follows. At uh, 4 a.m., the cordon was thrown around. Operating executives were on duty by 5.30 and launched the operation at 6.30. The operation was performed without any noise or fuss. Uh, all people were gathered at the collection station by 10 a.m. and in trucked. The people were in trucked. The trucks started their trip. Combing Kalmyk houses failed to reveal any other Kalmyks. Sheep were counted. Yeah, they were, they were putting cattle trucks on, on the railroad, right? Yeah. Which yeah. is horrifying. Just brutal. Trucked away. Uh, just, just, yeah, just sent away like, yeah, like cattle, essentially, or like livestock. And th- and this this is a form of genocide, like deporting yeah. an entire nation. Oh, it's ethnic cleansing. To God, to God knows where is, is ethnic cleansing. There's, there's, no, there's no two ways about it. Yeah. So, yeah, around 40,000 people, as I said, uh deported so uh which is a pretty big proportion of the population now right yeah. post post world war one so uh yeah comics loyal to the soviet union even those of you you know those who had served in the soviet army uh were persecuted you know with with basically no distinction uh from from anyone else at the same time the assr was abolished its territory was given to neighboring republics E.B. Guchinova, in her book, refers to the deportation uh, as a form of collective trauma and talks about how this event became a marker in the point, the lives of all Kalmyks. Uh, so basically their, their lives were marked uh, before deportation and after deportation. So uh, our last section is, is kind of post-World War II. Joe, I think you're going you're gonna to talk to us about that uh, and how, how the nation was, was kind of rehabilitated after deportation. Yeah, so um, the deportation was a devastating blow culturally. There was an excellent, some excellent photographs available on a website called BuddhistStore.net, which has a feature on Kalmykia. And a quote from that was that nearly all Buddhist institutions were closed or demolished and the monks were forced to disrobe or be killed. So the, the long-standing cultural tradition of Buddhism was really imperiled by this... Um, ethnic cleansing. Unlike some other exiled nations, the Kalmyks were scattered from the Aral Sea to Sakhalin and from Isikul to Taimir. In 1957, Kalmyk autonomy was restored and the people returned to their homeland. The consequences of their exile, however, were devastating. Population shrinkage, economic rollback, a lack of educated cadres and a language crisis. That's how the situation was described by uh, E.P. Bekeva, who was a Kalmyk ethnographer, I believe, uh, in an article on Oirat descendants in Russia, a historical and ethnographic sketch. Very interesting article, which was quite valuable to me in understanding this era. Just to kind of go through the cha- what changes in 1956, the nation was rehabilitated under the kind of post-Stalinist trend of trying to um, undo some of that paranoia and return people to their homelands. Um, but the impact on the Kalmyk people, as we said, was the worst of any of the displaced nations, uh, with um, a huge percentage of the population killed in the process, mm. uh, very quickly in the process of being deported. In 1957, Kalmykia was recreated as an autonomous region within the Stavropol Krai, and then in 58, it was made a, an autonomous uh, Soviet Socialist Republic again, an ASSR. While people returned, cultural revival was not a priority, so the Russian language now predominated. Some Buddhist rituals began in the homes of former monks in a kind of a folk religion way. 
but uh, not a single hurl was built until 1988 in Kalmykia. So from the from 1958 to 88, 30 years, not a single religious uh, building was constructed. And a new generation of monks wasn't trained, putting an entire religious tradition at risk. Since religious freedom returned in the 90s, there have been massive building projects which have brought institutional Buddhism back to every settlement. So nowadays, Kalamuks officially celebrate Zul, Tagansar, and Urusar, the traditional holidays. I think Zul is the the new year um, among the Oirat people, which is different to when Eastern Mongolians celebrate New Year. And stupas are being built where where relics are deposited. And you, you referenced in the beginning, uh, Luke, how um, burial mounds are, are have been built here for thousands and thousands of years. This is a continuation of that tradition. Mm-hmm. The influence of the Dalai Lama's government in exile can't be denied on this revival in the 90s. The, the 14th Dalai Lama, the current Dalai Lama, has visited several times and opened several different kurals in recent years. And the um, the head of the Kalmyk Buddhist, Telo Tulku Rinpoche, said uh, one of the main reasons for the revival is taking place in Kalmykia is because of the inspiration of the Dalai Lama. His first visit was the opening door for people to come out and say that they're Buddhists, and I'm not afraid of it. He is uh, the Shadzin Lama and is recognised as a Tulku, a reincarnation of a religious figure, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, which is a feature that had been absent from Kalmyk Buddhism in the, 19, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so that hadn't really caught on because Kalmyk Buddhism was cut off in the rest of the Glubka tradition uh, for quite a long time. And now the idea of having a, a Tulku or a reincarnated religious figure as a leader has uh, returned or has been introduced into Kalmyk Buddhism uh, to kind of link it to the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama and the other religious leaders Interesting. In, in that school of Buddhism. In February 20th, 1992, the Supreme Soviet of the Kalmyk SSR adopted a resolution renaming the Republic as the Republic of Kalmykia or Kalmyk Tank. And this is obviously in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the restructuring of um, pretty much everything in the Russian sphere of influence. Mm. And Luke, maybe you you would like to talk about the new flag? Yeah, I mean, the following year, they adopted a a flag, which is, I think, a really nice flag. Uh, It consists of a yellow field with a sky blue circle, uh, in the the center of which contains a, a white lotus. So the yellow stands for the sun, the people, and the religious faith of the nation. The blue represents the sky, eternity, and steadiness. And the lotus uh, is a symbol of purity, spiritual rebirth, and happiness. And apparently its five upper petals represent the continents, and the lower four stand for the four quarters of the globe. Hmm. And together they symbolize the will of the comics to live in friendship and to cooperate with all the nations of the world. And it was approved by a resolution of the Parliament of the Republic of Kalmykia on June 30th, 1993. No, it's a very it's a very nice flag. I'm, I, I agree with the flag. Simple, but... Very good flag, yeah. Uh, let's say eight flags out of ten. <laughs> mm. So yeah, we're fa- we're we're fans of the of the Kamikia flag, for sure. So um, the most significant public figure in the post-Soviet era is a very curious character, Kirsan Ilyumshinov. He was three-time president uh, from the nineteen nineties up until twenty ten, and. Quite a shady figure, like very much an autocrat. He, he pretty much did away with the parliament as soon as he was appointed and introduced a, a new, smaller parliament. Um, I, I just recently found a, a comment that 
in a joke book he issued. Uh, there was a joke that was like, how do you be successful? And make, go back in time and make sure you were one of Ljumanov's uh, classmates. Cracker. Wow. K- kind of, kind of uh, laughing at the fact that he has a close circle of people who he <laughs> Uh, mm. The fact that he's released a joke book is a whole other thing. Um, oh, his, and his jokes most, based around himself. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it even worse. So he has very much, he's been described by opposition journalists as seeing himself as a can, very much making it his own fiefdom. And the most notable point about him, which you may have heard of him, is his obsession with chess. I have heard about this guy. And yeah. promoting chess throughout Russia, throughout the world, in often inappropriate ways. Uh, he has mandated it be taught in schools um, to everyone. It's mandatory, right? Uh, at the expense of other things. I mean, you ha- you have you have a just a, a line here in the notes, Joe, that says chess overinvestment, which <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever seen in that like you know uh, th- those words in that in that context. You before. wouldn't it's think a, there's such a thing as too much chess. No, no, <laughs> there is. <laughs> Apparently there is. Ilyum Zhinov was the president of the International Chess Federation in 2018 and I believe was asked to step down in response to um, issues relating to the annexation of Crimea and okay. so okay. on. He has built a gargantuan building called the City of Chess to host the International Chess Olympiad. Sounds proportionate. Uh, it's heavily criticised for the amount of investment being put into that in an impoverished republic where the economy is languishing and unemployment is high and there are other problems which I'm going to get to. And uh, chess overinvestment. One curious thing about him and then one horrifying thing about him. So uh, one of the headings in his biography on Wikipedia is UFO experience. Uh, he okay. drew worldwide attention by claiming that in September 1997 he was taken by from his flat by aliens Travelled in a spaceship visiting another planet. He claimed three of his staff searched his flat during this, failing to find him, and could not explain how he then reappeared in his bedroom an hour later. A Chess Notes feature article by Edward Winter provides a comprehensive collection of Ilumshinov's or Omar's and his alleged encounters with aliens. That's, that's sure. funny. That's right. cute. I'm sure this will gel well with the thing you're about to tell us. Oh. Yep, so um, he was widely critiqued for alleged corruption, trying to set up sort of money laundering mm. facilities for Russian yeah. oligarchs. I don't really understand how Kalmykia could be considered offshore, but I think it could somehow. Uh, and also squandering huge amounts of public money on essentially his hobby. But tragically, one of the leading journalists most responsible for highlighting this, Larissa Yudina, was stabbed to death in 1998 before she was able to publish wow. uh, some of her reports. And the investigation was taken over by the federal government, and two of those convicted of her death were government aides. So one yeah. was an advisor to Ilyum Shinov, and another, uh, I think one of those involved was also a, a organised criminal. So he's always denied involvement, obviously. He's never been convicted of ordering this assassination. Mm. But the involvement of his associates is very suspicious. He's also rubbed shoulders with other controversial people. In 2011, he appeared alongside and embattled Muammar Gaddafi, 80 Days All-Star. Oh, yes. Ding, ding, ding. 80 Days All-Star. After having played chess with him. Now, Bernie Gaddafi's son was quite good at chess, but Gaddafi himself, not so much. Um, But it was a weird thing to do as the president of the International Chess Federation to be like, 
Gaddafi got his back. And similarly, um, soon before the Iraq war, he went and played chess very publicly with Saddam Hussein. Wow. <laughs> so what, what a life this man has led. And presiding over a country, which I don't have much more to say about Ilyumshinov, but the country he's been presiding over has suffered greatly from the dramatic exploitation of the land during the decades of Soviet rule. For sure. So from Elitsa to Volgograd, or which was once Stalingrad, it is becoming the most arid area of Europe. 80% of the land is undergoing oh desertification, and 15% of it is, is infertile sand. Hmm. Uh, right. This I was not the this, case yeah. when it was a lush steppe being grazed by cattle. But pastures were overgrazed, there were dry winds, there's rising temperatures. It's, it's, it's not quite uh, fiddling while R- Rome burns. It's uh, what's it, playing chess while your country turns into a desert. <laughs> castling while the, 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 the pastures you know, blow away. Dry up and die. We, yeah. we, have, we haven't quite cracked the phrasing, listeners. We'll, yeah, yeah. We'll put something there, snappy something on our Twitter at some point but, once uh, we figure out the way to describe yeah. what a terrible job this person's done. <laughs> So from an article by Igor Zon, uh, pastures were grazed two to three times their sustainable production. Mm. Saiga populations and habitat greatly decreased. That's a kind of indigenous antelope. Uh, more than 17 million hectares were subjected to wind erosion. 380,000 hectares were transformed into moving sands. And 106,000 hectares were ruined by secondary salinization and waterlogging. From a New York Times article by Maxim Babenko, a man called Erdny says... Our people have been already deported to Siberia once. Now nature itself is forcing us to leave. So, things are not on the up and up in Kalnikia. And that's, um, on a slightly lighter note, I found a vaguely amusing Google review of a national park, which seems to mostly be sand. Somebody gave it four stars with the sole review of impressive monotony. Okay. <laughs> so uh, if that's what you're oh, into, man. Um, you could enjoy it. It does look very beautiful when it's green. Uh, the parts around the lakes in particular are still doing okay, but there's a lot of problems. And there's photographs in the New York Times article of just, you know, sheep pens with the banks of sand up the walls oh, that are going to need to be swept away every day to keep the sheep safe. Right. But let's come back to Bekeva's, um very interesting article on uh, the ethnography of the place. We, we have the, the following quote. The last decades of the 20th century saw a revival in Kalmyk national culture. The strongest signs of survival were religious. There was no Buddhist community or Buddhist temples among the Kalmyks before 1988. Now there are temples in every district of the Republic. And stupas are also being built. Two major Buddhist centres, the Siaksin Sume and the Burin Bagshin Altin Sume, have been established in Elista, and the Republic of Kalmyk has become a well-known Buddhist centre. The success of national revival is reflected in popular interest in history of the oil legacy. Many social organisations now focus on revival of national culture and language, and things like singing of the epics and so on, which weren't completely crushed by the Bolsheviks, are becoming more common. Yeah, so there, there is hope, hmm. but it's a challenging, challenging situation in which to revive uh, a culture that's taken quite a beating. It's interesting to know that in 2010, Kalmyks made up only 57% of the population, Russians 30%. And there's also lots of, well, there's also some Kazakhs, Ukrainians, Koreans, and Chechens making up part of the population. So they, they're still the majority in the Republic of Kalmykia, but um, by no means an overwhelming majority. 
hmm, that that also will make it challenging to, to create a clear cultural revival in in this part of Russia. There's no real talk about independence that I can see. But like, no, I didn't come across anything on know, that either. What like, you know, given the young people are leaving and stuff, it is it's difficult. Culture has been eviscerated. The land is gone. There's no like, economy to speak yeah. of. I mean, I did a little bit of reading on the economy, and I do believe they they have some oil and I gas. Have a future, but um, I mean, I suppose that that was why the Germans were there. Um, the, the oil fields of Stalingrad. Yeah, so. it doesn't it doesn't seem to be a, a massive driver of the economy, or at least uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem to. To have helped them that much, I believe annual oil production is around one point two million barrels. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem to have have made them particularly uh, well off. Yeah, and yeah, irrigation is becoming more and more necessary uh, now. So they're they're having to ship in water from uh, various other parts of Russia, which is only going to become more and more economically burdensome as yeah, time goes on. It's I'm never sure. a good position to be in. It really reminds me of the, the, the Aral Sea that I think we talked about in our Turkmenistan episode, that like massive lake, which has now shrunk to practically nothing due to mismanagement of uh, irrigation right. and over-farming. Centralised economic planning for agriculture, I think, has been proven to be an absolute ecological disaster by, by the USSR experiments. Mm. Yeah. And it's a pity that the more marginalized communities in, in the Russian sphere of influence seem to be paying the price for that. I mean, don't they always? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, even today it's it's still uh very sparsely populated. I just had a had a note here to say a list uh some to about a third of the population is just over a hundred thousand people. And in addition to Alista, there's only two other towns uh in Kalmykia really that or areas that can be described as, okay. as towns. Uh, each with a population of around 10,000 people. Gorodovsk. 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 And uh, Lagan, or Lagan. Uh, Is that which, not an Antrim yeah, somewhere? Belfast, Bel- Bel- yes. Uh, <laughs> the Lagan. I thought that was in Northern Ireland, yeah. Well, there was the city of Tara <laughs> earlier as well, which sounded a bit, uh, a bit Irish. Yeah. yeah, indeed. That's true. Uh, so, yeah, the, it's, it's, it's still very... Uh, very sparsely populated for for a, a place the same size as, as uh, I think I mentioned in the intro, uh, South Carolina or Czechia. It's not got a, a huge uh, amount of people living in it. Doesn't have a lot going on, unfortunately. Yeah, there's not a lot going on. Okay, well, if you liked the episode, uh, be sure to leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, and you can also find our show notes, uh, which should be in your podcast player. Or uh, you can check out the full show notes through our Patreon page. Uh, Patreon backers get full access to our show notes as well as other uh, bonus materials. And also get to vote on episodes like this one. Uh, so they get to choose our season finale at the end of every every season. Uh, apologies this episode is probably a bit delayed dropping into your feed a combination of uh family issues and uh covid diagnosis and uh family expansions for some of us uh if if you if you if you hear some coughing my apologies if you hear some babies crying uh, (laughs) then yeah that's probably me but uh that's okay yeah this has been a an up and down season but uh thanks for sticking with us uh particularly to all those of you who are uh still backing us on patreon and we uh, we already have season six in the works, and we're hoping to get that to you very soon. All issues above, notwithstanding. 
You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We're eight under 80 Days Podcast uh, on all of those platforms. You can also email us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch directly. That's been it for us in Season 5. Thank you again very much for listening, and we'll see you in Season 6. Bye-bye. Bye, Dahar Hartle.